Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 76 of Haunted Muse, and it features the latest installment of my first novel, Looking Glass Theory. So, here we go. Looking Glass Theory, Chapter 22 Nora slept a dreamless sleep until Callista wakened her around noon. The four of them went down the street to the Sunny Point Cafe for breakfast. Finding herself hungrier than usual, Nora ordered the shrimp and grits, which were plentiful and delicious. She ate every bite. They agreed that Sheridan would go back to the studio to manage the day's dance campers by himself, while Callista would drive her car to follow Nora and Hazel back to Durham. Of all the cars in the entire world that you could have bought, Nora said, shaking her head as her sister pulled around to the street and got out. You bought a Prius. I understand wanting to be eco-friendly, but why not a Tesla or something? They're electric. You can afford it, says the woman who literally has millions of dollars and yet drives a Tahoe, Callista chided. I love my Prius. Besides, do you know how many rescue animals I saved at the no-kill shelter with the difference that I donated? I have no idea, but I'm sure you're going to tell me, said Nora wearily. Callista, although sincere about her love of animals and her desire to protect them, had worn her out over the years with her zeal for advocacy. Five hundred! Isn't that amazing? I am absolutely astounded, said Nora. Although her tone was sarcastic, her surprise was genuine. She'd never thought about the fact that the choice to buy an automobile twice the price of what one would really need cost the lives of 500 innocent homeless animals. Only someone like Callista would think of something like that. After they'd shared directions to the hotel where Cliff and Pierce were staying, they set out for Durham. Hazel insisted on driving Nora's car for the entire three hours. Callista followed in the Prius. Filled with warm grits and suddenly more exhausted than she realized, Nora fell asleep in the afternoon sun, like a cat on a windowsill. When they arrived at the hotel, Nora awakened slowly and called Cliff's cell. "'We're sitting outside of Dr. Yates's house,' he said. "'We were supposed to meet at four, but when we knocked on the door, he didn't answer. So I called down to his old lab by the number you gave me, but his assistant said that she hadn't seen him in a while. Is this normal?' Is he some kind of absent-minded professor or what? Not that I know of, said Nora, slowly emerging from her catatonic state in the passenger seat. Through the window, she could see Callista pull up in her Prius, get out, and begin walking toward the car. Although, I didn't know him at all when we met. I know he and my father were close. They worked together on the same experiments. But as for his propensity for forgetfulness, your guess is as good as mine on that one. Well, since we're already over here, why don't you just meet us? I'm choosing to believe that he is your typical professor and just forgot. Maybe he'll turn up soon. Nora didn't like the hint of suspicion that she heard in Cliff's voice. Cliff had once told her that the best trait a lawyer could have was an instinct for finding the truth when surrounded by lies. She didn't want to think what his suspicions were about Dr. Yates, as every possibility was bad. She pressed the button to roll down the window and gave Professor Yates's home address to both Callista and Hazel simultaneously. Following Callista's lead this time, there are two-car wagon train pressed on eastward. Pulling up to Yates's house, Nora realized something that she hadn't before. 
Dr. Yates had the most perfectly manicured lawn of any old bachelor's home she'd ever seen. The pansies, peonies, and petunias were perfectly placed, and each plant turned several happy faces to the sun. There was also a rose arched reading nook, a koi pond, a beehive, and a gazebo, surrounded by blue snowball bushes in full bloom. The house itself, Nora noticed as she approached, was immaculate. Everything painted and pressure washed, in spick and span order. What could cause a person, Nora wondered aloud to herself, to cultivate such a garden that no one but he would see? Loneliness, answered Hazel, not recognizing that the question was rhetorical. Nora had begun to realize that her new friend thought every question pondered in her general vicinity required her response. It didn't bother her. Rather, Nora found it amusing and somewhat telling. She imagined for the first time that Hazel, who seemed to be such a self-sufficient authority on so many things, must also be lonely too. Parking the car at the curb, they got out and approached the house where Cliff and Pierce stood waiting in the yard. I've been thinking about this, said Pierce, leading her toward the door. Perhaps I can call the security company that operates these push-button door locks and get them to open it for me remotely, as if I were his realtor or something. I mean, you said he was really old, Nora. What if he's passed out in there somewhere and he needs our help? Nora hadn't considered this possibility. She was surprised that Pierce had. A few moments later, Pierce had the security company on the line. Laying on the sweetness heavily, the operator bought his entire fabricated story. However, after the interview was over, Pierce still seemed disappointed. What do you have to be sad about? Nora asked, as Pierce punched in the key to the door lock. The door swung open with a click on soundless hinges. It's always been too easy, Pierce said. The operator was a woman. My entire life, all the way back to elementary school, I've been able to leverage compliments to females in order to get what I wanted. I kind of feel bad about it. I'd save your sorrow, young man, for a true occasion to spread it, interjected Cliff, pushing past Pierce through the unlocked side door and into the small kitchen. Depending on what we find in here, you may have one soon enough. The interior of Yates's house was just as Nora and Hazel had remembered it from their initial visit. Old leather, heavy dark wood furniture, and floor-to-ceiling bookcases that reached into every peak of the tiny but impeccably clean little brick Tudor house gave the overall impression of having entered the home of a very well-read hobbit. Although it wasn't anything even close to being in style with any trend in the past century, Nora couldn't help but admire the warm self-assuredness of it. However, her tranquility was short-lived. Found Yates, called Cliff from the back room. It's bad. Be careful not to touch anything as you walk in. Nora's heart sank as she walked toward the sound of Cliff's voice. Hazel and Pierce followed. Cliff stood with his arms crossed, studying the bloody mess that had been the right side of Dr. Yates's head. Entering the left side of the room, the silhouette of the left side of Yates's face looked perfectly normal. However, as Nora walked around to stand by Cliff, she almost became sick. The right side was nothing but a crushed mass of blood and bone. His blue eyeball had become loose in the socket, most likely from the bullet severing the tissues holding it in place, and it hung halfway out like some vulgar impression of a Halloween mask. Bits of flesh and flecks of bone clung where they had dried on his polo shirt, 
a completely incongruous shade of robin's egg blue. Nora could see his teeth, in surprisingly good condition for a man over 70, gleaming out of the patch of skin torn away from his jaw. Still caught in his death grip, the barrel of a Browning 9-11-38 pistol rested with its tip on the floor. Yates's finger was still on the trigger. Dear God, Nora gasped as something rushed past her, brushing her leg only slightly but making her jump all the same. It was Yates's large ginger tomcat. He hopped up onto his dead master's lap, sniffed with a sort of sad, curious look on his face, then turned and hopped again to the desk to lie down, watching his inert form. Judging from all that orange fur on the lap of his khakis, Cliff said, I guess that's his cat, poor devil. Cliff leaned in to read what Yates had written on the desk pad. Looks like he was working right up to the end. Nora must have appeared curious because Cliff stepped aside for her to have a closer look. Be sure not to touch anything, he cautioned again. We'll have to call the police in a few minutes. I just want to get an overall impression of the scene as it is before they arrive and inevitably bungle something. Feeling more at ease when viewing the notes from Yates's intact left side, she stooped to read the lines at the top of the notebook page. It said, Upon re-examination of Subject 153, both in the presence of the two aforementioned witnesses and upon my later review of the glass that same evening, the findings that were captured at last by my employment of the infrared heat-detecting video camera were nothing short of astonishing. They revealed... But here, Yates's observations trailed off with a sharp downstroke of his fountain pen, leaving a tiny hole punched into the paper. Looking down, Nora could see the pen in question lying on the floor, just out of reach of Yates's arm that draped limply over the arm of his antique desk chair. Don't you find it curious, said Cliff, pointing at Yates's left hand, that the professor wrote left-handed, yet chose to shoot himself with his right, especially in the middle of a sentence. Nora circled around the chair again and studied the gun in Yates's hand. Actually, I find the pistol itself even more curious. She knelt down closer to study the portion of its grip that was visible around Yates's palm. She'd only encountered a pistol of that type with a striped zebra wood grip once before in her life. In a flash, Nora could see herself at ten years old, with her sisters standing on each side, all of their eyes fixed on the gun as her father explained carefully to Vicky and herself how it operated then cautioned Callista never to touch it, because it wasn't a toy. Then, she remembered Callista being sent back into the house to play, while her father took her and Vicky out to the woods behind the house, and patiently instructed each of them in great detail on the proper care that was to be taken with firearms. Although Henry had two long guns in the house, a shotgun and a rifle, which stayed tucked in the back corner of his half of her parents' walk-in closet, the episode with the pistol had stuck in Nora's mind because it was the only time she'd ever seen him holding one. Vaguely, she remembered the unease she'd felt when he initially placed the pistol heavy in her hands. As she fired once, it became less, and with a third time, almost normal. Last, she remembered him smiling proudly as he came back from checking her shots with a card in his hand. He pointed out the first shot, which was low and to the left, then her overcorrection, which had gone high and to the right. But the third, she'd known without looking, was a bullseye. Nora stood thinking carefully for a moment 
and looked down at the orange cap, which now weaved himself ingratiatingly around her calves. As she reached down to pet him, she was amused to see that his collar read, Sidney Carton, as in, the drunken lawyer from Tale of Two Cities, she thought. The mirror image of the supposed hero of the book, Charles Darnay. Although, Nora remembered that it was Carton who was the one who was willing to face the noose for the woman they both loved. Cliff, the lawyer, growing impatient, broke into Nora's reverie. Are you going to tell me why the pistol is so curious, or are we going to stand around here and pet cats all day? For the first time since Jasper's death, Nora forced herself to really see Cliff for what he was. It had taken her the long car ride back to Durham to fully process it, after the initial shock of his callous reaction to the new information she'd shared with him about what she'd seen in the mirror had worn off. But now, Nora was sure. She could not trust him. Something in Cliff's inability to demonstrate any sadness when faced with the death of a complete stranger was what did it. Although she'd leaned on him like a friend for years now, as her only protection from Jasper's mother and all of the worms that came out of the woodwork grabbing for pieces of his estate, Cliff was still just an old Nashville huckster, a mercenary who should only be told what was absolutely needed. That, Nora said, was my father's gun. I haven't seen it since I was ten. She paused, then added thoughtfully, I was told that he'd shot himself with it. This is the end of chapter 22. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode of Looking Glass Theory here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.